What a full day already, huh? If you've got a Bible, turn it to the book of Ruth. We have been in Ruth for uh, the last several weeks, and uh, it sort of fits. We've been talking about families, and every spring we try to do a, a series that talks about just sort of walking through life as families, and it's, uh, it's sort of a cool thing that we see children baptized. We see uh, graduating seniors uh, recognized, and of course, this is a season of Mother's Day and Father's Day and Memorial Day and all of the things that make us think about families. And you know what? Families are messy. <laughs> this last week, I've been privileged to do a wedding a funeral, and I've received more than one graduation invitation. And those things make me think about the celebrations that bring families together. Right at a wedding, everybody's there, everybody's in a good mood, everybody, and, and relatives from near and far. At a, a graduation party that some of you guys are going to have, there's there, a lot of advice that you don't want, uh, a lot of advice that you don't need, and, uh, and, and people are going to congratulate you as you look to the future. Funerals are a little different. Funerals tend to be a place where people gather and they think about the things they wish they had said. They think about the, 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 the people that aren't there anymore or, or the, the, the things that, that were about this life. They certainly celebrate all the accomplishments of a life well lived. And certainly as, as followers of Christ, they celebrate the eternity that often takes them out of, of, of pain. But as the families gather... The, the, the discussions, sort of the, the elephant in the room conversations are those things where the family's going, well, I, I wish we'd done more of this or less of that. I wish we'd have said this and not this. Uh, I, I think about the things I, I, I wish I had experienced. Families are messy. And so in the book of Ruth, I, I want you to kind of work with this, even in discouraging times. God is moving among us. So we, we've talked about Ruth, right? And if you're, if you're just catching up and you've never really spent much time in that book in the Old Testament, it's just four short chapters. I think it's one of the best short stories that's ever been written. The characters are amazing. The, the writing is amazing. And, and in this particular story, we have a family that made a decision based on circumstances where they didn't want to stay where they were, and so they left. And in this particular story, the, it's a love story that eventually works out for all the characters, but along the way, there's, there's just a lot of twists and turns. But what I want you to get today, what I want you to kind of hang in there today, is that God is bigger. There's a verse in the New Testament where Paul is writing about it, he says, God works all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And what I want you to kind of grab hold of is that he's always working behind the scenes, even when it doesn't seem like it. He's always working even when we're not really giving him room to work. He is always at work whether we know it or not. And we see this in this story, fascinating story. So, talked about the circumstances. There was a famine in their hometown. 
Their hometown was a place called Bethlehem, which is ironic that there was a famine there because it translates house of bread. And there was no bread in the house of bread. And so this guy Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their kids Malon and Chilion decided they would go to a place that was better for them. And they ended up going to a place that was horrible for them because over the course of 10 years, the husband died, the sons both died. But along the way, they both married foreign women from the place they went to called Moab. And now they have returned. Alan talked about that last week, that now they have returned to Bethlehem because they heard finally that there was bread there. Famine makes us examine. When families get together, we often sort of evaluate the state of the family. What's going on? Hadn't seen uncle for a while. Hadn't seen him for a while. Oh, he's, oh, wow, he's here. Uh, oh, wow, is she married again? And we always think about the, the, the sort of the status of the family, the, the state of the family, so to speak. And in this case, a challenge for the family, a, a challenge for them as a family And the first week I said, sometimes our challenges come because the culture throws them at us. Sometimes the challenges come at us because of natural disasters or or, or a a change in circumstance, a fire, a flood, a, a bankruptcy. Sometimes challenges come at us because of our own personal choices. And we said the first week that we could probably assign blame all around that there was a famine. That was, that was sort of a natural disaster. There was a choice that the family made to, to, to decide they weren't going to trust God for that, and they left and went away. So we, we could probably assign all kinds of blame, but, but that's not where the story takes us. The story takes us to that they went away as a family Their family was decimated by the death of the husband and both of the sons, and now only the widow and her widow daughter-in-law are left, Naomi and Ruth, and they have come back to Bethlehem. So our story kind of picks up, and I don't want you to to miss this, that there is a a, a sense that we can find ourselves in any family— But in this particular one, I need to to revisit sort of the cultural circumstances that the the, the society was very patriarchal. That means it was a a man-centered society. So the man of the clan was a guy named Elimelech. That was Naomi's husband. He's the one that died in Moab. So the man of the clan was the one who made the decisions. He was the one that owned the land. He was the one where where the the heritage was traced through him. His family owned uh, all the property. The the, the, the woman brought a, a wedding gift into the marriage, but she had very little. And so when they went away and he died and the sons died, there was nobody left to inherit anything, and likely their family land was passed on. Well, I guess I need to explain a a, a cultural thing they had back then. It was called leveret marriage, and it was the responsibility of a male in the family, usually a brother of the, the deceased, 
who would then have a child with the widow in order that the family name could be carried on. Well, there was no brother. There was, uh, Naomi was too old to have another child. And so it was in danger of this land that they had being passed away from their immediate family forever. So there was a family, and then there was a clan, and then there was a tribe. And so the tribe was the, the big unit, then the clan was the group of families, and then the, the family itself. And so that's, that's kind of where we are. The man of the clan was dead, and now Naomi is trying to figure out what's going to happen next. So this girl, Ruth, she was an immigrant, a foreigner, an alien. She, wasn't, she came into the family that, that, that's got to be just the really strange thing when, the, when the, the spouse of a family member comes in and then something happens, a death or a divorce, and all of a sudden you don't know what to do with this family member. Well, this, this lady, Ruth, pledged her loyalty to her mother-in-law after everybody else died. She says, I'm going to be with you when nobody else is with you. Alan talked about it last week in chapter 1, verses 16. She says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, I'm going to stay. Whatever you eat, I'm going to eat. Wherever you die, I'm going to die and be buried. That's a big deal. You look at the Bible, it's really a big deal where your bones end up. I don't want to be gross or anything, but it's really a big deal. Joseph, in the Old Testament, he insisted that after everything was said and done, somebody would throw his bones in a box and take him back to Palestine. Abraham made sure that his bones ended up next to the bones of his wife. It was a really big deal. If, if, if somehow your bones didn't end up in your homeland, you were thought to be cursed. So Ruth says, I'm going to forsake the gods of my people. My parents are still alive, but I'm leaving them, and I'm leaving them so dramatically that, as a matter of fact, I'm guessing, okay, this is just a really, like, out there, ADD Allen kind of thing. I'm guessing that Naomi had with her when they returned from Moab to Bethlehem, guess what I'm thinking was probably in the trunk of the car? Bones. Elimelech, Malon. Chilion, she had three males in her family, bones in a box, let's get them back home. And so it was a really big deal that Ruth pledged that kind of loyalty. And so that's sort of going on. They're back in Bethlehem, and now Ruth says, hey, I'm going to go out and try to find a job. The kind of job she could find was a a process called gleaning. You may or may not have ever heard that term, but in ancient times, it was sort of the welfare program for widows or orphans or the poor. And what it consisted of was that a farmer was not allowed to harvest the edges of his field. Okay, he had to leave that alone. His harvesters could go down the middle of the field, and then they were commanded by law not to be too efficient, They had to leave some stuff behind, right? And so the gleaners, the the one who needed to help, they would follow the harvesters and pick up whatever was left and also harvest the edges of the field. And that's how they were taken care of. And so Ruth said, we don't have any money. We don't have any land. I'm a a, a foreigner. You're a widow, too old to bear children. I don't know of any brothers that are going to come along to help. 
looking pretty desperate. I'm going to go glean in a field. Now, you got to get this part if you want to play. Everybody ready? Check this. She says, go, my daughters. So she set out and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So the verse 1 starts out, there was a man of the clan, his name was Elimelech, and it wraps all the way back around, and these are kind of like parentheses because here's that phrase again. But in the middle of it, it says, she just happened. The, the literal in the Hebrew, I, I wrote it down, her chance chanced upon a chance. That's the literal translation. And if you unpack that, they're in Bethlehem, Outside of Bethlehem are fields. She just happened to go in the direction of the plot, of the gathering of the group of fields. And within that group of fields, she just happened to go to the right field. And within that right field, she just happened to go to the right part of that field. Her chance chanced upon a chance. And you and I remember in that verse from Romans, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There is nothing about this that was chance. And some of you, you graduates, you got a, a phone call or you got a letter from a, a college that you have no business getting into and you're going, hey, I got in. And you're going, I chanced upon a chance. It's like an appointment. It's like some of us that have gotten jobs that we had no business having. I've never been a pastor before. Here we are. And it's like we, we chance upon a chance and we go, oh, I figured it out. I solved the problem. I got right down to it. Men, I'm talking to you. We can fix it. We can manipulate it. We can solve it. Who to blame? Who to call? And all the while, God is working behind the scenes in ways that we can't imagine. Graduates, if you don't remember anything else, you remember that. God is working behind the scenes in ways you can't imagine. So she goes out, and she is now in the gleaning party. And uh, I don't want to undersell this. She is young, probably 20s, maybe early 30s. She is alone. She is, we kind of think, attractive because of the context. So she is alone, unprotected, unprovided for, in a very patriarchal society where a woman is not really much more than a possession. Is there any thought that you and I would have that she would go to a field and not be molested? that she would go out among farm workers and not be harassed, not be uh, whistled at, called upon, fondled? Is there any chance that we would think that would not happen? I think the context showed us that it probably did happen, and here's where the love story begins to unfold. Stay with me. So this guy Boaz, and by the way, if you read the first verse in chapter 2, that's the narrator telling us about Boaz. Naomi has no idea. 
She, she does, the narrator is telling the reader, hey, there was this guy named Boaz. He was of the same clan. File that away. Put a pin there. I'm going to come back to that later. But you as a reader, you need to know that now. Naomi doesn't know that. So now Ruth goes out into the field, and she just happens, her chance fell upon a chance and chanced upon this field, and it's owned by this guy named Boaz, who happens to be of the clan that they're from. So now he comes out from town to survey his field. Apparently, he's somewhat well-liked because he blesses his workers. They, in return, bless him back. He, he said, uh, blessings, the Lord be with you. And they answered, Lord be with you too. And then he said, whose young woman is this? There's that possessive. Who does she belong to? And they said, oh, she's the, the foreman or the supervisor. He said, she's that, that, that girl, that, that Moabite woman that, that Naomi brought back from uh, when she returned home, and he's going, yeah, I heard about that. It was a small town, the buzz of the town, Naomi's back. She used to be important, and now she's poor. And look at what he says to her. And, and, and this is why I think probably that there was stuff going on. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And she came, and she did that without rest. Boaz responds to her, and this is why I think perhaps there, there was some uh, more going on than the story tells us. He says, now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean on any other field. I think it's quite possible that she was going, you know, I've had enough of this. The harassment is just enough. I'm out of here. And perhaps she was even walking away when he said, hey, who is that? And then he calls her back. He says, don't go anywhere else. I've heard about you. He says, also, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Towards the end of this story, we have a, another statement where her mother-in-law, Naomi, said, only go to those fields lest you be assaulted. Dangerous place for a young woman. So my guess is that she was kind of had enough of it that they'd been harassing her, and perhaps they even kept her from getting a drink of water. Your kind is not allowed here. Family stuff is messy. And yet here's this man of the clan, this, this, this guy where they're gleaning the fields. He says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell the men not to touch you. Don't go anywhere else, and you can have water anytime you want it. I think maybe he was responding to some stuff that had been going on. That happens to a lot of us, right? We, we react to something that's going on, especially in families. And it's, it's always great when somebody kind of steps in and, and takes up for us. Well, this, this was an incredible thing that he did. He began to take up for her. But when she asked, why would you do this? Why would you do this? Maybe he heard of what she said to her mother-in-law back a chapter before. Don't urge me to leave. Don't, don't make me return to my people. I've seen a different way. You, you, I, I've seen in you something bigger, something better. I, I, I want something else. Don't make me leave. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will go. Where you are die, I will die. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She is forsaking everything in faith that she's ever known because she's seen a better way. God has been at work 
behind the scenes. So the story goes on. Boaz says, you know, I've heard about you. I've heard about all that you've done. I've heard about how you have stayed with your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. It's been fully told to me. Small town, we talk about people all the time. How you left your mother and father, your native land, you came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, there are a couple of things about that I hope you should notice. In verse 12, the word that we have on the screen, L-O-R-D, Lord, it's, it, it really should be in a different font. In your Bible, it's probably all capital letters. And whenever that word is used, it refers to what God we call Yahweh or the, the personal God, not the far off God, not the God that you're afraid of, not the God that you, you, you're, you're thinking he's going to zap you because of your sins. This is a, a personal God, one that you would expect would come and be alongside of you. And, and so Boaz says, this is the God that you have said you would be loyal to. So somewhere in here, Yahweh has become personal to Ruth. And it's noticed. It's noticed. You, you have taken on this faith, this our faith. You have taken this on. And so you didn't know anybody before. Now you have placed yourself under the protective wings of the God of Israel. Her, her conversion, her, her, her faith story has come full circle. But I have one little problem with this, so stay with me. He said, may God love you for the things that you have done. And in the Old Testament, that was kind of the way they thought. If you did good, God blessed you. If you did bad, God cursed you. And that was kind of the thought all the way through the Old Testament. But even here, God is showing us that it's not about what you do. It's about what he did. It's not about what you show kindness to your relatives, although that's always a good idea. It's great not to pick on your sister. But he's saying you should be rewarded because you've been so kind to your mother-in-law. And it's almost like the author, once again, is showing us that's not really what it's about. What it's really about is that you place yourself under the shelter of the wings of the Almighty, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's not about what we do, it's about what He did. It's an amazing truth. It's poking its head in thousand years before Jesus was even born. And at the end of this, we see that there's, a, there's this hint that, that the, the author knew all along that he was writing a small story, which was part of a much larger story. So let me land the plane. There's a bunch of cliches about families. I wrote some of them down. None of us is as smart as all of us. Ken Blanchard said that. It takes a village. That's an African proverb, though with African proverbs, we never know for sure. Uh, This is probably my second favorite. 
George Carlin said, I went to a real nice family restaurant. Every table had an argument going. (laughs) Think about that. Then I like this one, Dodie Smith, an English novelist. The family, that dear octopus from whose tentacles we never quite escape, nor in our inmost hearts never really wish to. So the Burmese proverb says, in a time of test, family is best. Keep on reading as to what happened uh, after that. So she gleaned in the field from morning till evening. Uh, There was a point in time that uh, uh, Boaz said, I recognize everything that's happened to you. Why don't you come have dinner with me? He fed his workers, and he said, you join us at the table, unheard of. But he said, why don't you eat with us? She says, at mealtime, he said, come here, have some bread with us. So she did, and then he gave the instructions to the workers, let her glean as much as she wants to. As a matter of fact, why don't you throw out a little extra from the tractor? Make sure that she has something to take home. And the Scripture says that she took home an ephah of barley, which was about six gallons U.S. And so all of a sudden, we meet this guy who's going to take care of her. Now, do you remember just a few minutes before? There was no hope. They were trekking back to Bethlehem from Moab, no hope of anything. And all of a sudden, we found this guy who's doing everything, stay with me, that families are supposed to do. He protected her. He provided for her. He gave her a sense of promise for the future. And and that's what families are supposed to do, as messy as families can be, as hard as it is sometimes when we get together for a family gathering, as much as we wonder who's going to come, as much as we hope that guy's not going to come. Families are messy. And yet at the end of the day, it's the best place to work it out. And I hope you're not, if you're a single adult or if you're, you're living in this part of town and your family's far away, I hope you're not missing that it was not the uh, biological family that was stepping in here. It was the family of faith. It was the village that was raising the child in the time of test. It was the extended family that was best. It wasn't, it, all, everybody in the immediate family was dead, the, the, the husband, the sons, the other daughter-in-law had left to go back to her home. And now we've got this gathering that sort of in a weird way points us to the fact that families are where it's supposed to happen, extended families. If you're new to our church, I often say to you, welcome home. Because you have found a place that we consider each other family. We walk along each other when our families are messy. We create opportunities, uh, Miriam, for conversation in the lobby where where we can see faith stories begin to emerge. We, we, We want this to be a place. We want this to be a place where families can come alongside of each other and be honest about how messy they are. You have a, an hour or two, I'll tell you about how messy my family is. 
maybe a day or maybe a week or two. Not take a while. But what I know is that when I'm here, it feels like home. And I know that's the way it's supposed to be in our families. Graduates, I, I hope that you won't forget where your home is. And for the rest of us, I hope we won't forget what home is. That this scripture tells us that God is working in our families, in our church, in our community, whether we acknowledge it or not. Our chance, chanced upon a chance. Oh, imagine the coincidence. It's not a coincidence. He was at work the whole time. In this story and in your story. Would you pray with me? God, forgive us for underestimating you. You are... Alpha and Omega. You are beginning and end. You are powerful. You are present. You are all-knowing. You are all-caring. When we pray, you hear us instantly, no matter where we are, no matter how desperate our cry is, you hear us. You don't always act in ways that, that God, we would want you to. And in this wonderful story that we're reading, we see that you are acting even when the people in the story don't think you are. God, I hang on to that, that you're acting even when I don't think you are. So once again, I pray for these graduates, that they would have a sense that you are at work as they move into sometimes strange places and new roommates and new schedules and new rhythms, that they would remember first that you're always at work and two, that there's always home, that this is a place that will embrace and encourage. God, for the person who feels like Ruth, on the outside looking in, I pray that they can see in this story that you will spread your wings over anybody who returns to you, anybody who responds to you, anybody who says to you, would you forgive me of my sins and help me to be who you have made me to be? Will you take me, Father? And you do. You, you spread your wings over them. You cover them. You begin to give them friends and circumstances and inspiration through Scripture, through song. You do, Father. When we come to you, you come to us. James said, if we'll draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And we, we claim that, Father. And if there's anyone here who has never come to you, even for the very first time, may this be the day that conversation starts. That's your heart. You can go to the lobby and talk to one of our greeters. Come find one of our pastors. Let's get that conversation started. We'll baptize a young man next week who came to me after a service and said, what you talked about, I want. We love you, Father. We give our families, our church, our community, our world back to you. In Jesus' name.